If you brought a Bible with you this morning, you, uh, you can turn it now to the book of Habakkuk. And as I have for the last couple of weeks, I intend to make my introduction to our sermon this morning longer than normal to give you ample time to find the book of Habakkuk, as I understand it being a small book amongst many in the Old Testament. So we are studying the book of Habakkuk, which is a uh, prophetic book tucked away as a minor prophet in the middle-ish part of your Bible. If you have gone to where the, the Bible changes colors, where like it goes from black to red, you've went too far. You need to go back and find where it's all black. Uh, that's where you will find us this morning. Habakkuk 2.1 says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for bringing us together as your people. And I ask once more, Father, that you would, in your grace, by your mercy, that you would shed it upon us and allow us to understand your word. I thank you, Father, that the Bible that we have in our laps this morning is not man's words and it's not Jamie's words, but it is your actual word. And therefore, we don't need to wonder what God is like and we don't need to wonder what God says about certain matters. We're not left to our own conclusions about matters, heavy, weighty matters of suffering and injustice, but that you speak to us and you give us clarity and you give us answers regarding these issues. And I ask this morning that your spirit would illuminate Jesus in our minds, in our eyes, and allow us to worship the God who gave his son to save us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let me bring you up to speed with where we are this morning in the book of Habakkuk. There was once a man whose parents gave him the unfortunate name of Habakkuk. And he lived during a time of the uh, history of Israel where it was split into two different nations. The northern kingdom was swept away because of their idolatry. And the southern kingdom hung on. And Habakkuk lives in the, the kingdom, as it's called in the Bible, of Judah. And he lived in a very remarkable time in the history of Judah, which is a tiny little, it's like one-tenth the size of Ohio, tiny little place. And he grew up during a time of tremendous revival. See, what had happened was during Habakkuk's lifetime, the king uh, named Josiah took over the throne. Josiah was um, a child king. He took over as king at age of eight. And rather than filling the nation with Nerf guns and trampolines as any eight-year-old would, instead he turned to the Lord. And he began to seek the face of the Lord. And while Josiah sat the throne, the nation underwent a tremendous revival because they began to see and understand that worshiping gods other than the Almighty Yahweh God was wrong. It was evil. And so they began to tear down their pagan idols and tear down their pagan sacrifice. And someone found the Bible. There was 
only one copy, and some fellow sat it down and forgot where he laid it. And a hundred years later, someone comes across the Bible and says, this might be important, and they read it before the people, and the people see that they have been disobeying the God, and they have not been keeping the sacrifices, they have not been keeping the festivals, and they've been disobeying God for all of these years, and they repent. It was a great time to be alive. Well, King Josiah died. And King Josiah's kids were idiots, and they led the nation back into idolatry. And they began erecting all of these pagan altars again that had just been torn down. They erected them again. And this was a problem for our boy Habakkuk because unlike some of his fellow Jews, he believed what the Bible said. And he knew that if the nation continued along this path of idolatry, of worshiping false gods, that eventually God would bring judgment on that nation. He wouldn't tolerate sin for long. Just how long? Well, that was the question. So Habakkuk waits. In chapter 1, he waits. He prays. Nothing. He asked the Lord to to, to turn the people away from their sin, and they continue in it. He asked the Lord to bring revival. Maybe he was thinking God will bring another king like Josiah back into the throne, and the nation would turn back to their Lord, and yet they didn't. They continued in sin. Sin just continued in the nation, and it got worse, and it got worse. And eventually, homeboy loses patience. And he prays to the Lord in the beginning of this book. He says, essentially, just how long, O Lord, are you going to sit there in heaven and do absolutely nothing about the problems in this nation? And then we read this a couple of weeks ago. He makes the conclusion. I think it's in verse 4. He says, so apparently the law is paralyzed. Apparently Justice never goes forth. You're just going to sit in heaven and do nothing, and your law won't do a thing to fix the evil that I see in my day. And so Habakkuk receives a response to his complaint. And the Lord in verse 5 says, Habakkuk, you're not going to believe what I'm going to do in your day. You're just not going to believe it. The nation, the kingdom of Judah, it's evil. So here's what I'm going to do, Habakkuk. Here's my solution to your problem. I'm going to raise... I haven't been doing nothing. I've been doing something. I've been out in the world. I've been raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And I'm going to use the Babylonians to bring my judgment against your people. I'm going to use a very wicked people to judge a mostly wicked people. Well, you get the impression... That wasn't exactly the answer Habakkuk was looking for from his God. And so, he sits down and gets himself another complaint card from the front desk, as it were, and begins to fill it out. His second complaint for the Lord. That's verses 12 through 17, which we did last week. Habakkuk's second complaint, if you remember from last week, is less about the circumstances of the world that he sees. Instead, it's more about the nature of God himself. So wait a minute, God, you're going to send a bully to beat up the bully. That doesn't, that's, 
That's not, you can't, you can't do that. And he has a problem with God's answer. And his, his problem also involves uh, the Babylonians themselves. You remember? So what, what you're just going to, you're going to send these Babylonians and they're going to come in and they're going to overrun my nation and you're just going to let them go? What, what about them? Okay, so that's our judgment. What about the Babylonians' judgment? You're just going to let them continue to kill everyone forever? And chapter 1 ends. And here in chapter 2, we're going to find extraordinary relevance to our day in this 2,600-year-old book. Habakkuk asked the question, as it were, how would a good God allow bad things to happen? Have you heard that question before? How could a good and sovereign Lord allow evil, suffering, and injustice? If you've ever wondered that, if you've ever looked at your world and seen suffering, if you even watched the news one time in 2015 and you wondered, how in the world is God allowing all of this tragedy to go on as it does and not intervene? Then I think you'll find great significance and relevance in Habakkuk chapter 2. So we're going to pick up the dialogue there. I hope you found Habakkuk by now. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible with you to church today, we've provided for w- one for you in the pew that's in front of you. It's blue and it's white. And we'll be on page 540 and 541 this morning. So even if you can't find it, you can cheat. Verse 2, Habakkuk 2.2. 2. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So the Lord answers Habakkuk with a vision. And he tells him, write this down, Habakkuk. Make it plain. Put it on tablets and send it with your fastest messenger. May he who reads it run. Meaning the person who is the messenger, make him send it with a fast runner, right? (laughs) Apparently there was an ancestor of the Flores in, in Israel back then. Send it with the fastest runner and, and let him tell everyone in the nation what I'm about to tell you about the nation of Babylon. He says it awaits its appointed time. He guarantees the answer. He says it will not lie. If you think it's taking too long, just be patient. Wait for it. From this we learn, God answered Habakkuk's prayer with an answer that came at exactly the right time. 
And this is just like God. God answers prayers, and He does so in exactly the right time. When you and I are going through struggles and conflict, difficulties and hardships, it's the Lord hears your prayers and will answer your prayers in His timing. The answer to your problem never comes too early because if it did, then you would think that the power to answer the prayer was in yourself. Wouldn't you? I mean, I don't know about you, that's what I would think. If I'm like holding my baby who's sick and I say, Lord, heal him, and boom, he's healed. I would tend to think the power was here. So the Lord makes me wait sometimes. But it never comes too late to allow us to despair or to think that God doesn't hear us. It arrives precisely when God means it to arrive. It arrives exactly at the right moment. But it does arrive. And that's what he tells Habakkuk. He says, if it seems like this answer is going to come slowly, you've got to wait for it. The events of chapter 2, as we're about to read in a few moments, they happen. It takes them about 100 years, but they happen. And then comes verse 4. Habakkuk 2.4 is a hinge. It's the central verse of this whole book. If you are to understand the book of Habakkuk, you, are, you, you must understand Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4 is, is such a verse, it, it, the effect of it reverberates into the New Testament. Habakkuk 2.4, just the phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith alone, deserves its own sermon, which we'll give to it, God willing, in a couple of weeks. But for now, rather than unpacking Habakkuk 2.4 today, what I want to do is just show in 2.4 the contrast. This is what's relevant about this verse for chapter 2 for us this morning. The contrast. Two types of people are contrasted in Habakkuk 2.4. Take a look and you'll see them. The first is he who has lifted up his soul. Who's puffed up his soul. And the second is the just the righteous one who shall live by his faith. Now Habakkuk is written in Hebrew, and Hebrew is largely a pictorial language. Uh, Many many words in Hebrew, they they picture something. And here, the, the word for puffed up, the one whose soul is puffed up, it... It literally pictures something which is swollen, something a prideful person whose estimation of himself or herself is bloated. A person who has, is proud because they've found themselves just, they have found themselves righteous. Their only God is the God of their own making, the God of their own might, the God of their own strength. Presumably, God is speaking here of the Babylonians. The other person in Habakkuk 2.4 is the righteous person who lives by his faith. 
He trusts not in himself, self, but in the Lord. And the rest of chapter 2 is an explanation of what comes upon the person whose soul is puffed up, of the person whose estimation of himself is bloated. Of the person, the man or the woman, who believes in themselves for salvation. Or if you'll permit me to use a churchy word, for their own justification. Verses 5 through 9, God is showing how the person who trusts in themselves will ultimately come to ruin. The things that he believes will save him will fail him. The things that he believes give him meaning will be found meaningless. His is a house of cards. And God shows us this in verse 5 and following. Habakkuk 2.5 Moreover, <clears throat> wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, before anyone starts on the whole, see, pastor, I've been telling people that you can't drink alcohol. I've been telling them that alcohol is a sin and it's wrong and you can't drink wine. They don't believe me, pastor, but I've been telling them that's what the Bible says. Now look closer at this verse. If you look closely at this verse, this verse does not forbid the drinking of wine. It says the wine is a traitor, an arrogant man, never at rest. How does wine gather itself nations? How does wine gather things? I'm not much of a wine drinker myself, but I've never seen a wine that causes you to like gather nations into yourself and conquer. Clearly, it's not a French wine. <laughs> might be an American wine but maybe it's not wine at all maybe it means something else remember I told you Hebrews, Hebrew is a pictorial language the word for wine your Bible may even indicate this the word in Hebrew for wine is very similar to the word for wealth they're, they're the same kind of idea wine is a picture of someone who is wealthy and so if you read it with this in mind, that both are the same thing, both betray us. He says, wine is a betrayer, meaning the picture of wine, the picture of wealth is a betrayer. We, we use this kind of language ourselves, don't we? When we say, bring home the bacon, right? That's, you're not literally bringing home bacon, though maybe your family would be happy if you did. She better be. She better be. <laughs> That's a new strategy for marriage counseling. Bring home actual bacon. It will save your marriage. But he's saying here that it's wine is a picture of wealth. When you say you bring home the bacon, you're meaning you're providing for your family. It's a, it's a picture, and, and this is what's happening here. Both betray us. Wine betrays us, and wealth betrays us. How many of you know that wine betrays you? Psalm 104, I think it is, says that wine gladdens the heart of a man. But you know, if you drink too much wine, it betrays you, doesn't it? If you drink too much, there's a possibility you'll wake up in a ditch with no pants on. 
That's what could happen if you drink too much wine. But how is it that wine can be good, but then if you, it's, it, it's a, it can betray you. Wealth is the same way. Wealth is a good thing, can be a good thing, but it also, when misused, will betray you. In a hundred ways. In a hundred ways. Didn't Jesus himself tell us that it's easier for a gigantic, filthy, ugly, stinky camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven? Wealth is a betrayer. Wasn't it the rich young ruler who went away from Jesus saddened? And the gospel says because he was very wealthy. Wealth is a betrayer. And Jesus even told us that one of the things that keeps the word of God from finding, from finding good soil in our heart and bearing fruit in our life was the deceitfulness of riches. Money isn't bad, but it can be a betrayer. A couple of people asked me this week if I had played the Powerball. Uh, what was it? Something over a billion dollars, something crazy like that. And of course, my answer was no. I would, I would never put myself or my family in a place where there was a chance that I might receive such a large sum of money. Never. I'd seen her. I know my heart way too well to know that if I had as much money as I need, I wanted to buy anything. I'd sooner drink poison. Have you considered the effect of wealth on your soul? Not against money. But imagine having to never ask the Lord and trust in the Lord for provision. Do you know what kind of effect that would have on your soul? And that's why I'll I'll never apologize for encouraging you to give generously to your church. Generosity starves greed. It starves it out. And so that's why I say 10% is a great place to start, but it's a terrible place to end. Be generous because wealth is a deceiver. Don't trust in it. And so when I say something like great wealth to your heart would be like devastation to your soul, don't take that as like challenge accepted. Understand That when the scripture speaks of those with large money, it doesn't usually speak in great terms. It's very dangerous. And God has blessed us as a nation, and we ought to be very careful with the blessings of the Lord, lest we trust in it rather than Him. Verse 5 begins to explain the effect of trusting in wealth accumulating things and power and prestige. Here's what the Bible says. Wealth's greed is as wide as Sheol. It's, it's, it's a word for the grave. 
for hell. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The man and the woman who trust in money never has enough. He's never at rest. She's never able to sleep. The pursuit of financial security is a merciless slave master. Gathering and collecting and never getting enough. Money will never satisfy your soul. Deep down, I think we all know this, don't we? But yet, in the country we live in, we always have to be aware of this danger. We keep getting drawn in. We keep thinking that it's not going to deceive us. My prayer is that God would purge us of the sin of greed by granting just unusual forms of generosity until we come to a place where we really do just trust in Him alone. And then God goes from there in verse 5, in, beginning in verse 6 and then running down through ni- verse 19. God explains the fate of those who trust in themselves. And He gives five woes. Five woes. And the way he kind of does this, if you look closely in Habakkuk 2, 6, beginning of verse 6, I'll pull it up here on, on the overhead. He shows Habakkuk, those who have been conquered by the Babylonians, they're speaking out against the Babylonians. So the conquered are speaking at the last day. They're raised up on the last day and they speak to the conquerors. And this is what they say. Verse 6, Shall not all those who take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles say to him, uh, for him and say, Woe to him who reaps heaps what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake you, who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth and to cities and all who dwell in them. This Hebrew word there for woe, it's an interesting word and it, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch. It's just I've read a number of scholars who say that that word woe, it in our English language, it doesn't quite capture what sense is there. It almost has an exclamation of like poetic justice, sort of like a ha! kind of thing. Like if your boss comes to you and chews you out for something you didn't do and then turns around and, and falls over his shoelace. You're like, ha! That's the kind of feeling that, that they're, they're, they're expressing. God is showing how those who have been conquered by the conquerors, God is now dealing with the conquerors and the conquered look at them and they're like, ha! That's that's what woe means. And so they say, ha, because the Babylonians have trusted in the accumulation of things by way of debt. You see that in there? By pledges. They've built themselves up with pledges. And he says, your creditors are coming after you. And they're going to take back what they owe. Leave you with nothing. 
And so the Babylonians had trusted in things by way of debt, and those things could not save them. And then God goes to the next one in verse 9, the next ha, and he says, ha to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have despised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. And so he shows how the Babylonians trusted in their fortifications to keep them safe. They felt like they could have security and so they built a nest on high. And that would make them safe from harm, but their sin found them out. God says that even the stones you use to build the building to protect you cry out against your sin and they fall on you. And then God says, even the woodwork that you use to build your house cries out against your sin. So even your security, the thing that you built to protect yourself, won't work. You can't trust in security to save you or keep you from harm. And he just keeps going on. Verse 12. Ha! To him who builds a town with blood and founds it on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And they had trusted, these Babylonians had trusted in their great city and their social structures. They had built them on others and they had just trusted that we're a great people. We had built great cities and we can trust in them. And God says, you can't even trust in the social services. You can't even trust in your city to save you. You built it for nothing. It all burned. And then he makes the great promise that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And then what? Your city built on iniquity. When God's glory is filling the earth, where does that put you in your city? Your cities are nothing and they can't save you. Your social services, your social structures can't save you. And then in verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. This one's like, that sounds like my sophomore year of college. <laughs> you, will, you, have, you have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. And the woes just keep coming. Shame is coming upon you, Babylon. Notice how he says, you filled the cup of God's wrath, and it's going to be poured out on you. Their sin will find them out. Their destruction will come upon them. And then God says, the shame that you put on others will be repaid on you. 
And finally, in verse 18 and 19, he gives the fifth and final woe. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, but there's no breath in it. The final woe upon the Babylonians was they trusted in their idols. Cut down a tree, carve it up, and tell it to save you. And God says, oh, go, go ahead. Tell it to speak. Put, overlay it with gold. That'll, that'll probably make it better. Give it some silver. That'll work. Just, just spend money on it, your lump of wood. Or take some metal and, and hammer it down into an idol so that it can save you. But he says, there's no breath in it. There's no life in it. It can't speak, nor can it save. So the indictment upon Babylon is that they had trusted in all of these things, and yet none of these things saved them. 2,600 years later, you might be wondering to yourself, as I was, as I was reading chapter 2, what in the world does this have anything to do with me? How can we go from Babylon in 640 B.C. to Piqua, Ohio in 2016? 2106 as well. It's as relevant then as it is today. <laughs> the Word of God endures forever. <laughs> Babylon did get it. I think it was 539 B.C. or something like that. A hundred years later, Cyrus, the king of Persia, came through and destroyed Babylon. And everything that the Lord told Habakkuk would happen, happened to them. And their fortifications couldn't save them. And the money they borrowed couldn't save them. And all the fun that they had didn't matter. All the cities they built didn't matter. And today, Babylon is but a blurb in your history book. The truth is, Habakkuk 2 is tremendously relevant in our day. Whether it's 2016 or 2106, it's relevant. We live in a day when the highest virtue in, in, in the modern age is to believe in yourself. To trust in yourself. 
is so pervasive in our society. Movies, media, television. The message is almost always the same. Believe in yourself. My family rented that new movie, Pan. It's a Peter Pan movie. They, they redid a Peter Pan movie upon the recommendation that I will never take again. And, you know, the movie was fine. It was a dumb movie. But the message of it was that the young boy, you know, middle school boy, Peter, could become the pan. He could fly as long as he would believe in himself. And there was the climax scene is one of his friends falling down this abyss and he has to jump down into the abyss to, to, to get him. And he believes in himself. And when he finally believes in himself, he can grab his friend and fly him to freedom. And it's not an unusual sentiment, philosophy, conviction. It's, it's, it's really the conviction of our age. That so long as you believe in yourself, you will be a success and you will be able to accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. You'll be able to fly like Peter Pan and save Neverland. Yet this message is faulty. And eternally speaking, it's damnable. Don't you find that the problems in your life are not generally a result of you believing in yourself or not they're not the reason the the problems in your life don't come because you're not believing in yourself enough generally speaking they come because you believe in yourself too much when the credit card statement comes and you open up and you see the balance you don't think to yourself dang if i'd have just believed in myself more if I'd have just loved myself more. You loved yourself too much, which is why the credit card statement is the way that it is, which is why your bank account is in the condition that it's in. The premise is faulty. I don't know about your mortgage company, but if I called mine and said, I know I'm a few months behind, but listen, I believe in Jamie. I believe in me. And that's going to make it okay. Consider the problems in your world. Do you really believe that the answer to terrorism is that the terrorists just need to believe in themselves more? Do you really believe the economic problems in our country are because people are not believing in themselves enough? Or are they because men in Wall Street, men in Washington, and men on Main Street love themselves too much? Habakkuk 2 shows us that the Babylonians perished because they trusted in themselves. Because they believed that the fortifications which they built, the riches they accumulated, the things that they made would save them. And ultimately, they failed them. 
Their fortifications failed. Their riches failed. Their things didn't matter. And they suffered. Suffering and injustice has a way of exposing the source of our trust. And occasionally God uses suffering and injustice to do just that. To expose in us the things we're trusting in. The things which give us definition and meaning. Some experts say that this country is on the brink of an economic disaster or a a political upheaval. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. Whether we are or whether we aren't, the most important thing that you know is that when suffering does come in your life, who are you going to trust? Who is your security? Will it be your bank account? Will it be your good deeds? Will it be your power? Will it be your reputation? I don't know what storm is coming. But I do know that on one day, one day you're going to stand before the Lord. And you're going to have to give an account for your life. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, your life will be tested as though through fire. To see of what sort it is. And the things that you have trusted in will be exposed. And in that moment when God asks you, what have you trusted in? You can't say. The balance of my 401k. A good job. That I was a good person. That I meant well. How true you were to yourself. When God asks you, why are you here? You can't say, because I believed in me. Sadly, hell will be full of those who believed in themselves. There's only one answer in that moment. Only one hope. It's when you say, God, I have nothing in me. The only reason I'm here is because he went to the cross and he died for my sins and he brought me here. And I can't trust in this. But I do trust in him. And at that moment there will be Praise and acclamation in heaven because that is the right answer. God came into the world. He lived as you should have. He died as you ought to have. And God took your transgressions, your sins, all the wrong things you trusted in, took them off of you and placed them on Jesus. And God made him who knew no sin To be sin for us. And when Jesus died, the penalty that you deserved for your sin died with him. He paid it in full. 
And so if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you can stand in Him fully righteous, fully justified, and you will live. That's Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by his faith. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning in your mercy and in your kindness that you would expose our hearts. Father, show us the things that we're trusting in. Show us the things that we are looking to to define us, that we're looking to to save us, which will fail. Would you do us this mercy this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to stand to your feet. And here's what I, how I want to end the service this morning. Chapter 2 ends with this verse. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The probability of suffering in your life is certain. And when it comes, what are you going to say? Who are you going to turn to? What are you going to look to save you? So for the next few moments, she's going to play and sing another song. And I just want you to use this next few moments to search your heart. The Holy Spirit will bring to mind things in your life which you've trusted in, which will fail you. Things that you're looking to to define you, which will fail you. And when the Lord brings those things to mind, repent. Which just means confess, tell him, Lord, I've done this, I've trusted in the wrong things, and I ask you to forgive me. And then I'm going to come back up here. And if you have said those things to the Lord in prayer and meant them with your heart, I'll be able to declare that you've been forgiven. So I'm going to pray one more time that the Lord would expose the faulty things that we're trusting in as we sing. Father, I pray that you would expose to us the things we're trusting in and looking to to save us and give us the grace and strength to repent and to be clean and to move from this place forward in life without putting trust in anything except for Jesus Christ.